Well, there's a lot to cover with Vaughn Palmer this morning from the Vancouver Sun. Good morning, Vaughn. And good morning, Simi. All right, let's talk about BC Ferry, shall we? We're speaking with Rob Fleming, the Transportation Minister, coming up in the next hour. But uh, do you remember something like this ever happening before, where they're going to fine BC ferries? Yeah, look, Simi, I was listening to your news this morning and and the news yesterday, and I had an onion moment. You know, that's one of those moments where you go, is this a satire mounted by the (laughs) satirical website, The Onion? BC Ferries which gives this enormous subsidy from the B.C. government, and the New Democrats have taken total control of B.C. ferries, and they're going to fine B.C. ferries for missed sailings that are driven by crew shortages. Uh, The fine, Simi, $7,000. Wow, that's really going to make them smarten up at ferries. That's a $7,000 clawback on the seven. dollars hundred million dollars the new democrats have given bc ferries over the past year I, you know this is ridiculous <laughs> i have to say it doesn't add up uh, the reason there are canceled sailings on bc ferries because of crew shortages is twofold i mean one of the first things is that it's very difficult to attract people to ferries although they're getting better at it but that's a wage benefit pricing marketing challenge. Another reason is crew members are told to stay home when they're sick, especially. I mean, we've all heard that. And the third reason is staffing levels set by Transport Canada, a federal agency. So I don't really see how ferries can affect any of those things. And in addition, with the ferries sitting on top of a massive pile of government-provided cash, why would it have any impact at all? So it is kind of, I heard um, opposition leader Kevin Falcon saying, you know, giving them money that's just going to, they're going to take back again? Is that it? Yeah, it's a clawback on the subsidy. I mean, they can do the accounting in different ways. They say, well, now, this is not going to affect fares. Well, no, because fares are already set by a regulator and the regulator has capped fare increases at 3.2% over the next three years. But it's not going to affect salaries in the BC Ferries executive suite among NDP appointees on the board. It's not going to affect the union because the union uh, is already, you know, saying, hey, there's a problem with wages and benefits in attracting ferry workers that they're losing people to private operators, it isn't going to persuade the Federal Transportation Agency to change its view on crewing levels. So I I just think it's ridiculous. They're basically clawing back, uh, what is it, one one thousandth of one percent. I may have done the math slightly weird on that, but in any event, they're clawing back $7,000 per cancellation out of a provincial subsidy of $700 million. I don't see how that would affect any decision-making at BC Ferries. I think it's just an empty gesture in public relations by a government determined to show it's doing something about the problem. 
uh, this is not doing anything about the problem. Because if people just read the headline, they'd go, oh, okay, good. Yeah, it's right? about time. Exactly. It's about man, time. Oh man, I'm going to make them varies. smarten up down there. I can just see the board <laughs> meeting. Joy McPhail, former NDP cabinet minister, convening her board and going, oh, man, oh, man, they're getting tough with us here in the provincial government. $7,000 fines. This is like, wow. We really got to smarten up. Are they taking back any of the $700 million uh, that they gave us? Well, um, they're taking it back $7,000 at a time. So how many cancellations would you be able to get away with before that actually impacted the bottom line? All of them. Uh, So what (laughs) happens then um, with the, the, there was a ferry increase rate set too, right, for that. And and the money that they have been given, that $700 million you mentioned, that can't go towards funding day-to-day operations, can it? Well, that's supposedly. So there are two subsidies. There's the annual subsidy, which is about $200 million. And then there's the one-time subsidy, which is $500 million. That supposedly they can't use the one-time subsidy to reduce rates. Uh, But, you know, the ferry commissioner came back with a report. And originally the ferry commissioner was saying, she's independent, She said, we were looking at 9.2% a year increases on ferries. And now it only needs to be 3.2% a year for four years. So uh, they found the money somewhere in there. And as I said, uh, this is a challenge perhaps for chartered accountants, but the government subsidy does appear to have, at least in the short term, four years, taken some of the pressure off the bottom line at ferries. They also, it's also allowed the ferries to continue with what they also need to do, which is also a factor in cancellations, and that is upgrading the fleet. As we know, uh, one of the biggest problems this summer and stretching into the fall is that the ferries are wearing out. They're old ships, they've got all kinds of problems, and they need to modernize the fleet. And that's going on well if the fiscal squeeze at ferries had forced cancellation of that. um, I think, you know, the the fleet would be in trouble for a long time. So the half a billion dollar one-time subsidy is supposed to underwrite that as well, reduce some of the pressures on recruitment to make it easier, all that. Mm -hmm. And it will. But, you know, as I said... uh, We're going to get the details on the penalties in the spring, so this story is not going to go away, but a penalty of $7,000 for a canceled sailing uh, for crew shortage reasons, well, there were a 1,000 of those in the past year, so I guess if you multiply 7,000 by 1,000, you start to get talking real money, but not if you're comparing it to $700 million subsidy. Mm-hmm. All right. So well, things that we're going to be asking Rob Fleming about coming up in the next hour of the show. I but look forward to it. Simi. I look forward to it, too, now, Vaughn, after talking to you. But we have more to talk to you about. I'm talking about the first day at the fall opening of the legislature. And boy, there were some fireworks, Vaughn. There really were, Simi. We'd been wondering with the B.C. Conservatives having been recognized as the fourth party in the legislature, what their leader, John Rustad, would do with the access to question period. And we got the answer. His first question was on SOGI, the policy that the government he was a part of brought in, uh, sexual orientation and uh, gender awareness 
in the schools, and he went at the government, Rustad did, and he said, would the government admit this was divisive? So we got an answer where Rustad's going on the issues. He's staking out territory for social conservatives. The drama, however, Simi, came with the answer. Uh, the question was pitched to the education minister, but the premier got up and answered. And man, did he blast Rustad. Oh boy, did he and ever. People people can go on and, and find it. It's all over social media. It's on the Hansard website. And uh, summarizing, he basically accused Rustad of political opportunism, of targeting vulnerable youth who are in danger of suicide, and of importing the U.S. cultural wars to B.C. And he finished, the premier did, with he should be ashamed of himself. Uh, I, I've seen some tense moments in the legislature and some dramatic ones. Uh, that's one of the most dramatic I've seen in a while. So, I mean, and what happened next is dramatic because, of course, the New Democrats applauded the premier and then gave him a standing ovation. But I sit and I'm looking at BC United and the BC United members start thumping their desks. Eleanor Sturko was the first, but the others all joined in. And then they stood up, most of them, and gave yeah. the premier a standing ovation. There were three liberal uh, BC United who didn't join, but I, again, I'm trying to think of a time that a premier gave what was essentially a partisan response and question period and got a standing ovation from the opposition. It really was dramatic. It really was. And that is being shared. I saw that video right across the country. People are sharing that for the answer that the premier gave to John Rustad. And I thought Kevin Falcon said it well, too. He said, listen, there's a lot of things we're going to disagree on. This is not one of them. No, that's true. Now, Rustad's answer is interesting. Uh, he, in the House, asked another question on the same theme. Um, and, uh, you know, go into the details of what he said, but he claimed that parents are terrified and children are coming home to use the washroom because they're afraid to go into the ones at the school and all that. I, the essence of what he did, and he said he's not going to be intimidated, was he sent a big signal that... John Rustad and the B.C. Conservatives are going to be the voice in the B.C. legislature and B.C. politics for social conservatives. So Rustad was part of a center-right government under two premiers, Christy Clark and Gordon Campbell, that were certainly economically conservative. But Campbell in particular, but also Christy Clark, said we are not going to go out and court the social conservative vote. And they demonstrated it on a number of issues. Uh, yes, there was some voicing of support for that, but they made it very clear they weren't going to be doing that. Uh, Rustad is really the first BC party leader to come out and say that's where he's going. He's going after the social conservative vote. They really haven't had a voice in the BC legislature since Bill Vanderzam resigned as premier 30 years ago. On the so it's a big major political development. Whatever you think of social conservative views, they now have a voice in the legislature. It's John Rustad, and it is going to have mm. a disruptive influence on voting patterns in BC. And I think it was pretty obvious yesterday. Okay, and let's talk about some of the new guidelines that they were trying to keep in place. Like it was supposed to be a 45-second yeah. guideline for questions and answers. 
Okay, well, I would give them credit for at least trying yesterday. There was less heckling in the house. There were some groans. There was a bit of grumbling, but much less than we've seen in the past. The new rule or the target is to keep questions and answers more to the point, down to 45 seconds. Uh, I would say most of the members were within, I don't know, 10, 15 seconds of that uh, guideline. And several members really lived by the rules. The premier uh, certainly uh, was uh, 45 seconds as best he could. Shirley Bond of the opposition was less. Sonia Furstenau of the Greens. And the, and the Greens are known to be rather long-winded in question periods. So I especially give her credit. And there was one member who clearly didn't get the memo. The Minister of Forests, Bruce Ralston, ran the clock out on both of his answers, almost two minutes. And out in the hallway, had no apologies uh, to Keith Baldry. He said, well, I have a lot to say. <laughs> but in general, for a first day for a trial run, uh, they're trying. They should be encouraged. Um, we'll see how it unfolds. The House isn't even sitting next week, so they've got time to work up their game and live within the rules. But no, I, th- I think I'd say I'll give it a B plus for day one. Okay, but clearly, even from what we've just talked about this morning, it feels like a very different tone in this legislature. Yeah, it's a very different tone, and it's going to be a very different tone. Look, Rustad gets asked in the hallway, how do you feel about all this? You know, BC United joining in with the Greens and the New Democrats on this issue against you. And he said, look, he said, my line is... There are three left-of-center parties in the legislature, and three lefts don't make a right. His, he's very clear about where he's going. Uh, he's an experienced politician, Simi. He knows what he's doing. You know, he knows that with a new party, you've got to find a place on the political spectrum that isn't already occupied, and social conservative values, I would say, is the place he's chosen Uh, He has to get attention and coverage, and he is getting attention and coverage, even if he's getting condemnation from some quarters. Uh, He's going to use it to build political support, uh, to raise money, to try to win seats. Um, Whether you like it or not, what he's doing makes sense in terms of the political interest of a new party. Sure, sure, with all the attention. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and, and, you know, we're going to cover it because that's what we do, and as I said, he's, again, you go to his uh, Twitter feed, he's getting lots of likes, lots of response uh, from people who feel that social conservative values aren't heavily represented in the legislature, who want those represented, who think those are more important to some voters than elect, than uh, economic issues. Mm-hmm. And that's where they're going. That's where he's going And I think we just have to look at it and say whether we approve of what he's saying or not, uh, he's likely going to get a fair amount of support for his views. All right, Vaughn, thank you. Bye-bye, Cindy.